We are operating on a global rulebook that is dated in 1992 before we even had a mobile phone, never mind any of the other technology solutions. That is clearly a world away from the reality of 2022, never mind the future, where we obviously have a lot of other options in which trade takes place. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we will talk about the future for digital trade and how the global agenda on electronic commerce and digital trade is taking shape. More specifically, what I hope to explore today is what the WTO should be doing on digital trade. And if the WTO can't do it, how do we get it fixed? And what other initiatives could be useful? Now, digital trade continues to grow. If globalization is happening somewhere, it's definitely here. According to the United Nations, in 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, digitally deliverable services globally went from below 52% of services exports in 2019 to almost 64% in 2020, while ICT services grew from 10% to almost 14% of all global services exports. Now, digital trade offers tremendous opportunities, including from a development perspective, but there are also challenges particularly in the area of digital standard setting and rulemaking. Some argue that this should take place at the WTO level, but should it, can it, and will it? And to make sense of this all, I'm joined by three leading voices in the field. First of all, I'm pleased to welcome Ambassador Pimchanok Pitfield. Ambassador Pitfield is Thailand's ambassador to the WTO. She has been in this role since March 2021, and previously, she was Director General of the Trade Policy and Strategy Office in Thailand's Ministry of Commerce. She has vast experience in the field of international trade and trade negotiations, and is today closely involved with discussions about digital trade and the new economy. Secondly, I'm joined by Chris Southworth from London. Chris is Secretary General at the International Chambers of Commerce United Kingdom. And he is also very relevant, the co-chair of the Legal Reform Advisory Board of the ICC's Digital Standards Initiative, which works to create harmonized digital standards across international supply chains. Finally, from St. Gallen, I'm joined by Simon Evanet. Simon is Professor of International Trade and Economic Development at St. Gallen University and is Director of the Global Trade Alert Initiative. So everyone, a very warm welcome. Let's get started. Simon, over to you first. What do you think are the main challenges for trade policy in terms of digital trade today? I think you can answer that question at a fundamental level and a practical level. At the fundamental level, Enlightened trade policy is about persuading people that us versus them thinking should be rejected in favor of treating each and everyone equally. And in the digital economy, that's made difficult for four reasons. First, not everyone understands the technologies and some are scared by it. Secondly, 
you have winner-takes-all markets. And so sometimes the winners are foreign companies, not domestic companies. Thirdly, the development uh, processes associated with digitalization are still things that we are understanding. And fourthly, of course, the geopolitical rivalry that has developed has made it difficult uh, to disentangle data issues, national security issues, and trade issues. So at the fundamental level, that's the challenge. At the practical level, we have very little idea about what governments are doing. So there is no central inventory of what governments do collected by an international organization. So unlike in a tariff negotiation, we don't even know what the other side's barriers are. We're all sort of learning by doing as we're going through this. And not everyone sees this as necessarily the top priority, say, in a regional trade negotiation or at the WTO. So at the practical level, we have challenges too. Thanks so much. And and Chris, perhaps also as someone who talks a lot to businesses that do a lot of this trade digitally and, and increasingly so, what kind of challenges do they see? Or is it all, uh, you know, a good news story? Well, I mean, I completely agree with Simon. I think we've got to decouple. The, the problem we have at the moment is every, everything is thrown into one bucket. The politics is actually the real problem because there is a geopolitical difference between the way we want to manage the internet economy and with that, the trade economy from a, a sort of digital economy perspective. And that's quite different to the practical business-to-business -business relationship, which is primarily transactional, where there really isn't the friction at all that we're seeing at political level. So the, the first challenge is the politicians to try and help them understand that there is a big difference between the big geopolitical challenges of different values, different systems, different approaches to the way we go about life and business from the actual day-to-day -day reality of just doing business. And our view is we, we can get on and just do business and digitalize the trade system quite happily without any conflict with a bigger conversation going on in, in the political sphere. The second challenge in a way is, is actually articulating what is digital trade. Too often I hear digital trade talked about as if it's some sort of nice to do activity aside of trade. It's not. This is about fundamentally about modernizing our trade system so that we actually can do trade faster, cheaper, simpler in the modern environment where we obviously have technology. And that leads me sort of to the next challenges, because when it comes to the WTO is a great example. We are operating on a global rule book that is dated in 1992 before we even had a mobile phone, never mind any of the other technology solutions. That is clearly a world away from the reality of 2022, never mind the future, where we obviously have a lot of other options in the way we go about the systems and processes in which trade takes place. So the number one challenge on a practical level is our legal systems. We are operating on laws that go back to the 1800s that say we have to use paper for certain documents. Those are clearly out of date. They need to be updated. And partly as a result of that, we're operating in a world that's absolutely fragmented. Nothing connects to anything, whether it's platforms, systems, or processes. So it's a bit like the old world was before Microsoft and Apple sat down and had a sensible conversation about how a Word document moved from one system to the other. Now, I understand for a certain age of people, they won't understand that time, but it wasn't actually that long ago. But we've all seen the benefits of what happened since. The good news is we are now on the cusp of that Microsoft Apple moment in trade where we have harmonized laws coming into place. We have common standards frameworks, the WTO ICC standards toolkit, where we can actually connect systems, processes, and platforms together and of course, that means we can actually move trade information in safe, secure, digital means quite happily across all of those systems. And that, of course, is going to make a dramatic difference to the speed and flow of trade. And that's crucial to the uh, ability to bring more companies into the system, more inclusive, as well as making it much, much more accessible 
to a lot more countries around the world than it currently is today. That's great to hear, and it seems like a lot is already happening. Is is also a lot happening in Geneva, Ambassador, in, in a WTO context? And I'll ask you later specifically from a Thai perspective, but just your observations in, in the context of the WTO's various work processes, does the issue of digital trade get enough attention? Yes, thank you very much. I'm very happy that Chris has raised this issue, that uh, we have come a long way uh, since uh, you know we used to have uh, the agreement on, on GATS or services, which is the main crux of uh, the e-commerce issues and digital discussion in the WTO right now. I was in 1999 here negotiating services, I can assure you that at that time we were just coming out of the uh, tail legs age, you know, and at that time we didn't, we tried to figure out the uh, definition of what is the actually internet, how it fits in the, the, the commitment of services. As you say, the rule books have more or less stayed the same for the past 20 or so years. I think that it is high time that the WTO must modernize and, you know, digitalize our discussion here in uh, at the WTO. To answer your question, Rem, uh, whether we have paid enough attention to this digital trade. I'm talking about digital trade in the broader sense that Chris has mentioned, not about only e-commerce. But uh, at the WTO, the discussion seems to be two level. One mainly uh, about e-commerce, which is uh, a subset of uh, digital trade, and then uh, a broader digital agenda. The thing is, at the uh, multilateral level, which is uh, for everybody, the discussion is still confined to e-commerce. Uh, moratorium and that kind of issues, but uh, digital trade agenda have been uh, paid attention by uh, other people, but it's in the plurilateral format, meaning it is not multilateral. Not everybody is participating, but uh, more than 87 is a part of a discussion of plurilateral. So I would say there's a lot of attention and uh, we try our best to move forward with the WTO discussion, but um, uh, unfortunately, it is not uh, uh, at the multilateral level which we are seeing the, uh, the broader discussion. And just following up on that, from the perspective of Thailand, what should be on the agenda? What are the priorities with respect to digital trade from your perspective? Okay, if we talk about digital trade or digital economy in the broader sense, um, Thailand as uh, one of the countries in Asia-Pacific, we have seen tremendous growth of uh, digital trade in our region for the past almost 10 years now. This is due to many, many factors, uh, such as the high penetration of telephone and internet. You know, a lot of infrastructure are doing well. We have younger populations. They love playing with their phone and all the medias and stuff like that. And also, uh, due to COVID, our SMEs have been forced into going into things like mobile payment and stuff like that. So, in a sense, COVID has pushed us to adopt uh, digital activities quite uh, quickly. But for us, um, I think there are a lot of uh, issues that uh, developing countries still have to pay attention. There are three components for successful uh, part being integrated in the uh, digital economy. One is, of course, the main infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, you know, our telephony, mobile stuff. Second one is, I would say, the regulatory framework must be enabling uh, everybody, you know, uh, business people or users to be able to do that. Thirdly is the uh, component on human you know, the, the soft side, people have to be ready. The SME have to be uh, open-minded to adopt these things. I think uh, all these, the, the enabling ecosystem have to go hand in hand. 
And in terms of uh, if we go back to WTO discussion, maybe on the regulatory side, the regulatory coherence, we, we need to, to step working on that. And that's interesting. And I think it connects also to what Chris has been saying, what's happening in, in terms of the harmonization of digital standards, that that's moving ahead. But Simon, you mentioned in your very eloquent sort of four challenges list as fourth point, the geopolitics. Is the geopolitics increasing the risk of fragmentation or decoupling also in the digital space? I think the short answer is yes, that risk is there and and it's growing. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for us to tackle in the trading system because we typically don't go anywhere near anything that has national security on it. That may well be, again, misused in order to shore up local digital service firms or at least to carve out some space for them. So yes, I think the, the geopolitics, unfortunately, will exacerbate the fragmentation. But what would that look like in the in the digital space? Well, you have, I mean, we have already at least two countries which have pretty much sealed them up, so themselves off from the rest of the world, right? But in the form of China and Russia. Then you have to ask yourself whether other countries would follow suit. I think the good news is that countries like India have had second thoughts about whether or not to do that. And their most recent data protection legislation proposals seem to be a lot more enlightened than where they were only six months ago. So I think countries are beginning to figure out the value of engaging globally. The more that can be persuaded that that's the right way to go, then we can limit the fragmentation that is taking place. One area where you, I could imagine where you would really see fragmentation materialize is if the discussion on the e-commerce moratorium becomes really difficult. And just to explain to our listeners, in 1998, the e-commerce moratorium was agreed, where effectively the 164 members of the WTO decided not to impose customs tariffs on any electronic transmissions. That runs out in 2024. In a context where the geopolitics interferes more and more in the trade space, is this a realistic fear? This for you, Pim is the issue of the e-commerce moratorium, is that something we should give due regard or, or is it potentially a storm in a teacup? I have to answer this question very carefully because uh, I'm wearing ambassador's hat. Um, of course, uh, geopolitics uh, is a very important development in trade negotiations. I, I would not deny that. Thailand, um, as a uh, Asian countries, we have uh, good relations with all countries around the world. Our priority is to see trade relations, uh, not only with us, but among everybody, you know, continue smoothly. But having said that, I can't say what is what. But um, in terms of e-commerce, I, I would say, uh, Rem, uh, that uh, I noticed that um, this is issue that many countries from all levels of development and from all sizes, they have positive interest. In the MC12, you know, I we were locked in a, a room together until 3 a.m. I can tell you for sure that, uh, okay, maybe details are different, but countries from the Caribbean, for example, they have keen, strong interest in seeing e-commerce development, digital economy, you know, because they have recognized that this is one way that smaller countries can play a role in international trade. Some countries still have concern on the moratorium, particularly on the tax or tariff aspect. I would say that overall, the benefit that uh, e-commerce and digital trade development can, can bring to every country is quite palpable in, in my view at the WTO. Yeah. Simon? Abandoning the e-commerce moratorium would be a big mistake. If countries decided to start raising customs duties on 
cross-border transmissions, we don't even really understand how they would implement that, let alone whether or not this has any, makes any sense. And so I must say, I've looked into this question. I'm not persuaded that there are big revenue losses at all from this. And the evidence put forward by uh, some people from UNCTAD is, I think, fundamentally flawed. And then secondly, I, I would say the argument that countries need policy space, raise customs duties and protect domestic service firms. I would really want those countries to explain to me where customs duties fit into digital service sector development. I just don't see the connection. I don't see a precedent case of the country hiding behind customs duties to build up the next Netflix. I don't see any precedents like this. And so I'm, to be honest, quite baffled by this. And I'm, I, you know, I worry that actually the e-commerce moratorium on customs duties might actually just be a, a negotiating bargaining chip in some bigger game. I think that's extremely retrograde if that's the case. I share, I share that concern. Uh, Chris? Yeah, it's interesting actually on that last point, because I think we saw that at MC12, didn't we? Everything was being blocked and it wasn't clear actually what, what's being bargained here. What's the play, if you like, of different countries. The e-commerce moratorium was clearly in that basket, but actually what, what it ended up, the play seems to be more about IP waivers than it did about the e-commerce moratorium. But going back to your original question, is there a risk of fragmentation before I go on to specifically the moratorium? Absolutely, 100%. Yes, there's a risk of fragmentation. It's not just a risk, it's happening. And it's most prevalent in the technology space. There's an active conversation already happening about 6G East and 6G West. Well, that's going to take us all the way back to what I, I call the Berlin Wall in the digital economy, where there's a dividing line where we all have to choose whether we're on one network or the other, whether it's an Eastern network or a Western. That's crazy from a business point of view. We absolutely must not go to that space. That, that we know does not end well. It's already happening. We have to get real about that and take on the issues head on. And I think fundamentally in the terms of the solution, we've got to get to a place where our political leaders can, can learn to coexist in the digital economy. It's not about control. We've got to find a way where we respect our different approaches, but we allow our, our business economy to operate in a practical, pragmatic way. That's, I think, ultimately the key solution in terms of how we go forward. Then on the e-commerce moratorium, I completely agree with Simon. Is this a uh, storm in a teacup? No, this is real. And this will impact all sorts of areas of the economy. I think there is a justifiable argument about the volume of services being imported in the South versus exported in the North. I think that's a genuine challenge. I, I think there's a good debate to be had around that, about how do we balance up the economy so every country benefits from the development of services economies. What really worries me about the, the moratorium is it keeps getting kicked down the road. It never gets solved. So there's this uncertainty that constantly hangs over us. It's completely unthought through. So there's no consistent approach to the implementation. We could end up with 200 different systems, uh, which would be an absolute nightmare for companies. Uh, and then we just don't know what the unintended consequences are for all sorts of industries, whether it's creative media, whether it's IP and design, uh, or whether it's just services in general. I'm a former government policymaker myself. The rule of thumb in policy is if you're not quite sure, you don't do it. And it feels like there's this, we're always on the cusp of we're going to hit the button on removing that moratorium. We really have not thought through what the consequences are going to be on all our economies, never mind those who are advocating for it. So I think it just needs a lot more thought. Let's make a firm decision once and for all, put the uncertainty to bed and move on. And I, I totally agree with Simon. Where governments are coming from, of course, is tax revenue. They sort of see this as an opportunity to generate revenue. I don't think that's really, I think we can generate that revenue far better 
by actually removing barriers and liberalizing our trade and actually drive up that revenue through actual trade, not putting customs duties on trade. I think that, that's probably the answer. I, mean, I want to jump in um, on, on one point that Simon has raised. Yes, I, I take note of um, his, you know, oh, I don't talk about revenue loss or policy space. I'm not going to talk about the revenue loss because I'm from trade. But I want to touch about a little bit on policy space because I have got these questions from some matters too. Like Thailand, we are not uh, yet support a permanent uh, extension of the moratorium. And I have said uh, on a couple of occasions that we 100% behind the support of expansion of uh, e-commerce and digital agenda in general. But um, there are things that my capital or my people, not, not the capital meaning, not the, the government only, but there are concerns in like the data, how data is treated. I would say that this is one of the issues that my private sector and even my farmers who we did some like smart farming project with, they are very concerned about how data is treated how data is protected and who have access to their data. For me, I, I still want to see how the regime of some of these uh, new issues that are related to development of digital economy before we, we can uh, support the, the moratorium for permanent basis, you know. So there are things like that, apart from the tax and that data privacy and so on and so forth. I think you can support the permanent extension of the moratorium on customs duties. And that has no implication, I think, for the legitimate regulation of the digital economy. All we're talking about here is whether we give up the tool of using import tariffs and export duties. Since we don't know how we would use that tool and we have no precedence of countries using that tool in any productive way, I'm not sure what we're losing. So I'm very much with the, the ambassador on the need for proper, sensible regulation of the digital economy. And that is a debate which, of course, goes on. But on the question of financing, you know, if countries are really worried about losses in revenues, then they can always put you know, domestic sales taxes on uh, digital services. And this would be, could be done in a way which is very even-handed and consistent with the principles of the WTO. That's not a um, license to go and raise taxes very, very high. It's just a suggestion that there's an alternative to customs duties. And Chris, aside from the fact that we should recommend policymakers and politicians to listen to this podcast, what more can we do or perhaps also businesses do to avoid that fragmentation, which indeed is already happening, but could get that much worse if we enter in the territory where the moratorium is scrapped? Look, the only answer to this is to work together. I mean, that really is the only answer. Actually, the ambassador just mentioned, I think, a really fundamental point. Data is top of the radar every time you talk to any business from any part of the world, actually. We're all worried about that. So, and that's a genuinely challenging issue. And we're not going to solve that on our own. We've got to work together, particularly industry and governments, to try and figure out what the next step on the data journey is. I would argue strongly, we've got to get behind the WTO. The WTO gets a really hard time. I think really unfairly, it's not the WCO. You know, every government, the members of the WCO have different perspectives. The WCO, I think on e-commerce and digital trade is actually doing a really good job. We've got an e-commerce agreement. It's taken a bit longer than we expected, but it's sort of 80, 90% done. And actually, as always in any negotiation, the, the issues that are still on the table are really difficult. Source code, data, you know, we've got to help. We've got to get around the table and say, you know, what is that solution that's going to work for everyone? Because if we can get that agreement through, and I'm completely confident we will get that agreement through in 2024, if not the end of 2023, 
then that's going to be a real game changer because it, it won't serve the needs of everybody because these you know, sort of global agreements, even if plurilaterals rarely do. But what it will do is it will pull us out of 1992 into 2022. It will be inclusive and bring 86 countries together because what we don't want is a digital divide where some win and others lose. We definitely don't want that world. And so I think we've got to get behind the WTO got to work together. Let's try and figure out what these difficult issues are and then use other agreements and other sort of forms of trading relationships to then drive the standards higher where we can. That for me is absolutely the way forward, but not criticizing the WCO is not going to get us anywhere at all. It really isn't. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue talking about the future for digital trade with Ambassador Pimchanok Pitfield, Simon Evenet and Chris Southworth. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Centre, the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break. We're going to continue talking about the future for digital trade. Going back to Simon's list of four, sort of the challenges that digital trade faces. First of all, he said that this is complex. This is difficult. People don't always understand it. Secondly, it's winner takes all. And thirdly, mentioned the issue of development, that we don't really yet understand how the impact between digital trade and, and, and development objectives are. If I paraphrase you correctly, uh, Simon, just double checking that. Ambassador, with respect to development and digital trade, what is the, the, the Thai perspective on how the two come together? Thanks you uh, very much for asking me this question. I have taken a look at uh, recent data on the so-called digital divide because, uh, frankly, before I came here, I was not convinced that there is uh, a lot of digital divide anymore coming from Asia-Pacific, where people are very uh, excited and on the, the bandwagon of uh, telecom and everything. But when I arrived in Geneva and started looking at the global perspective, I found that the digital divide is still very much a big problem for African countries, for example, and especially in LDCs. So this is one, one thing that the, the barriers for discussion uh, of uh, this issue in WTO, you know, Chris, for the record, you know, maybe the difficulty in getting uh, rules agreed at the WTO is because uh, we are so different. In 2021, over a third of the world's population, or 2.9 billion, still don't use internet. But the, the thing is that most of these 2.9 billion people, they are in least developed countries or landlocked developing countries and small island developing states. So, and these are, they are also members of the WTO. We have to be mindful of this. 90% of people in developed countries use internet regularly. In developing countries, is 57. And in LDCs, only 27% of them use internet in 2021. 
So this is the, the fact of life we have to grapple with. We have to be mindful about that. When you talk about development in uh, WTO, the problem is uh, different countries see it from different angles. When you talk to some, they may think about financial assistance, for example, as a development solution. Some wants to have longer period of implementation. But if you talk to me like I'm we are in the middle, what I want to see development tools in a way that would help my country upgrade or up-level our participation in the global competition, you know, that kind of stuff. We think about technology transfer or uh, sharing of know-how and knowledge that would help us in the long term rather than talking about something in the short term. I still think this is a, a big uh, challenging issue when you talk about development, which is uh, one topic in the WTO reform. People are baffled on, so what exactly we are talking about uh, the development here? I, so I don't have a complete answer for you because I think it depends on uh, who, are, who are talking about it. But my, my final message is that we have to recognize that there are countries here around the world who still have problems uh, on developing digital trade. Sure. And just specifically on the role that the WTO as a rulemaking body can play, where, where do you see opportunities? In Asia, we have uh, highlighted a few barriers that people see. Uh, I mean, our entrepreneurs and SMECs as a barrier in developing further. One is on the um, trade facilitation, you know, customs is always a big problem in e-commerce development. Secondly, logistic cost is quite high, you know. Maybe this answer was influenced by COVID, but uh, I still think the logistic cost and trade cost is still quite high, even in uh, Asian countries who are well connected on land, you know. The last one is the brand or how the marketing side, you know, um, if I can mention, like, um, for us, we, we see that for e-commerce and digital trade, getting on a platform is very vital for our products to be advertised and people know. But many Asian countries we don't have our own big platform like Amazon in the U.S. or Alibaba in China. You know, this is a, a major in uh, expansion of uh, this in Asia. Of course, we maybe at the WTO, what we should do first, in my view, is to strengthen and maybe using the TFA, you know, trade facilitation agreement, better discussing about how to um, clear issue on customs and custom procedures and that kind of stuff. You know, there are the, the trade costs and trade facilitation aspect that WTO can take up apart from uh, other discussion. And, and Chris, from a business perspective, what do you hear in terms of the interconnection between digital trade and development? Or perhaps phrased differently, what role can businesses play in terms of using their savviness and their know-how in terms of e-commerce and digital trade to further development objectives? Well, you might be surprised how much time we spend on this. It's a terrific issue. I think the first point to make is, because I would argue that there's a, there's a divide east and west and north and south, depending on what you're talking about. So that's important. You know, in the UK, we don't have the big platforms either. So we're in not a dissimilar situation to Thailand, actually, on that front. But we're not alone. But, you know, in terms of the priorities, we've got to understand digitalization of trade, digital trade is a journey. You can't flick a switch and, and just go digital. It doesn't work like that. So we're all starting from different places. That comes up an awful lot. And we have to respect that. So for some countries, they don't even have electricity, never mind the internet or 
any digital systems and we have to get the fundamentals in. For others, they're, you know, at a much further ahead, they're talking about digitalizing commercial tr trade documents and, and more sophisticated elements of the system. The biggest priority right now is, get, is to get a handle on where are every country, the ICC Digital Standards Initiative is actually going to publish an index on this in quarter one, quarter two of next year. So we can actually see exactly where every country is on that journey. And that will be really helpful. One, it will be public, so it'll be easily accessible. Two, it'll also be able to help us target the support so that we can get capacity building support into those countries that need it. Work elsewhere in terms of getting other aspects of the system into place where other countries are ready for it. But ultimately, we need to do this as industry and governments because Industry can play a role, but governments need to play a role too. And by the way, the multilateral development banks play a really important role here as well. In terms of kind of customs is an important one. The trade facilitation agreement is, you know, at a five-year review point. And that's really interesting because the big focus on customs, we're, we're doing okay on the digitalization of customs in the broad sense globally. But what we missed in 2013 is we totally forgot to wire in the commercial aspects of the system. Well, trade is a business activity first and foremost, not a government activity. And then what we're now seeing five years down the road is actually all the efforts on customs hasn't led to any change in the trade system at all. Less than 1% of electronic bills of, or bills of lading, or actually of trade documents are digital, never mind bills of lading. And that's because we forgot the, the commercial piece. So I think there's a wonderful opportunity now to bring in the digitalization of the commercial documents, which are the most important of all, so that we actually go about this in a, in a really holistic way. We're doing the customs and trade facilitation, and we're doing all the commercial, and then we'll be able to really accelerate the whole system together, working together as industry and government. And you know, not to forget, the Commonwealth published a really good report earlier in the year on the digital divide, actually. It was all about the sort of commercialization and digitalization. But actually, in that report, it really spells out the challenge on this digital divide, particularly north and south. So for an island economy or a small economy, the cost of trade can be higher than the value of trade. Well, we've got to tackle that issue on cost, because that makes no sense if we want to help countries and small companies engage in the system. Thanks for that, Chris. Very tangible and practical steps that can be taken to move this forward. Simon, one area which we haven't talked about is we've discussed what we can do at the WTO, what businesses might be able to contribute. But outside of the WTO, we also see either bilateral initiatives or minilateral initiatives or plurilateral initiatives that have real impact and implications for digital trade. So just to mention the CPTPP, of course, which has a, a digital chapter, but also, and perhaps more promising, the DEPA, the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement with four Pacific countries. How should we rank these plurilateral or minilateral initiatives? How important are they? Are they second best options to what we could do inside the WTO? Or should we perhaps cheer them on because apparently in smaller groups, they're able to move the conversation forward quicker than at 160 plus? The short answer is we should cheer them on. Well, then I'll go to my next question. <laughs> <laughs> the reason is that these uh, initiatives should be seen as evolving over time. So we have a group of very creative countries who are, are moving ahead. The deeper is by far the, the best uh, of these agreements. And they're blazing the trail, really. 
And I think the rest of the WTO membership will learn from what they're doing. There will be some process of adaption, but they are essentially helping us sort of shine the light on where the rest of the world could go. And so I think although this starts off as a small country initiative, we will see this grow. The other thing which sort of gives me comfort is that the deeper is all about uh, largely non-discrimination and transparency and building confidence. And these are principles which the countries outside the deeper who are not in deeper will benefit from too when they trade with the countries who are inside deeper. So there's no harm done through this type of a- agreement. So my view is, um, you know, is we should be fully behind the uh, spread of the deeper and its further refinement. So make deeper deeper. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, deeper has been overtaken by the UK-Singapore Digital Economy Agreement. That's actually a more sophisticated agreement. I think what's interesting about deeper is the modularity of it. You can sort of bolt in countries. That's interesting in the way that that's been structured. But in terms of standards, you know, that, that UK-Singapore digital economy is really, really interesting. I'll come back to that in a minute. Because I think in terms of the future, how we structure these agreements in the digital space is quite different to the traditional way of doing it. From a business point of view, in an ideal world, we want multilateral agreements, one set of rules for everybody. That's by far and away the best way of doing this. But we have to be real and we have to, that is not the reality of our political environment at the moment. So the second best option is plurilateral. Uh, those are obviously going on at the WCO. They have different functions and they're complementary. That's important to understand. The plurilateral, the big ones, so the WTO, for example, that's all about inclusivity and raising that bottom baseline as far as we can get up. But it will never go all the way for the more the countries that want to go further. The bilaterals and the trilaterals, they're an opportunity to then drive standards much higher and then act as a precedent for the future in terms of what more could we do. And the two play off each other. They're not antagonistic at all. But the catch is for business, the more agreements there are, the more complex the world gets. So we have to be conscious of that. But the, you know, they, they are complementary in that sense. Just going back to the digital economy agreements, I think this is an interesting one because the way we do trade traditionally is all through a, tr- you know, tr- a free trade agreement. But in, in the digital world, that doesn't work at all. You know, free trade agreements are very static. They tend to get overcomplicated with agriculture and a whole bunch of other issues, fishing and you know, who knows what. And then it takes ages to agree it. By the time you've agreed it, you're already out of date in terms of the technology solutions in the market. I think what the digital economy agreements are doing is providing an alternative for this new modern environment. They're more responsive. They're more dynamic. You've got ongoing regulatory cooperation that can respond to the technology coming into the markets and the way that businesses are operating. I think that's a really interesting new kind of way of working that that actually is much more responsive to business. And then you don't get this friction and this huge governance gap, which is kind of where we are at the moment. I completely agree with Chris on this. We need a new way of thinking about how we put these deals together because the old way of it's trading off concessions, reciprocity, that really isn't quite the right way to think about essentially defining the regulatory rules and the transparency around them and building confidence in regulatory systems. One of the subtle changes that we are seeing, and certainly I've, I've noticed this in talking to the CPTPP negotiators, is that they now, these trade negotiators now see themselves almost as brokers between different regulatory agencies and across countries. And this is a a much more subtle and really useful role. It took us 20 years to figure that out, but I'm glad we got there. 
And that and it's very interesting to recast trade negotiators instead of those having very binary offensive and defensive interests to being more of a broker and a facilitator. This begs the obvious question, given the the enthusiasm I hear from both Simon and Chris about DIPA and these uh, sort of smaller scale initiatives, where does Thailand stand? Is Thailand going to join DIPA or something or CPTPP or perhaps something else? Our authority who look after the digital economy, they have taken a look at the DIPA agreement and the feedback that I have is they are quite uh, positive. What we like uh, in particular is DIPA is a, a modular, you know, for the moment when we are not yet maybe ready to accept the whole the whole package, we can plug in several uh, of the elements in DIPA or the different models. So let me just mention uh, things like uh, consumer protection or e-trade facilitation and the uh, cooperation and also some exclusion of uh, government procurement. These are some flexibilities that we saw in the DIPA agreement or the models. And while I'm not so sure that we will be uh, able to embrace the, the whole uh, agreement, we think that uh, this is a positive development and Thailand is favorably looking at that. But um, if you are asking about CPTPP, I think that's a whole different ballgame. Like Chris said, you know, CPTPP is um, it's not only digital. No, not it's at all. It's a whole thing. And uh, normally our sensitivity is not in digital, but in other matters, which I don't want to say today, yeah. you know. That's a, that's <laughs> a different podcast. That's right. Okay. I, I think um, the, the way to go for digital economy is that maybe we should have a standalone agreement that we can, of course, uh, if we can embrace the whole thing, so we will have global convergence. But if not, in the meantime, we can have building blocks uh, in different modules mm-hmm. that uh, would uh, go in the same mm-hmm. direction. Very interesting. If I can chip in there a little bit, because Thailand, yeah, in terms of what the future looks like, it's open, interoperable systems where platform systems and information is all flowing, all connected. Thailand is absolutely at the cutting edge with Singapore in in Asia, way ahead of anyone in the Western Hemisphere. It's extraordinary. I I see Thailand because we're working with the Thai government, the ETDA, and it's it's unbelievable. The practice that's going on, the testing that's going on, the thought leadership that's going on. So I definitely see Thailand, Singapore, there's two hubs in the East. My issue, actually, going back to that, that divide, is the rest of us in the West are so far behind the East I'm really worried about that. You know, we need to catch up because they're talking about interoperable frameworks across the regional blocks. You know, they're actually doing it. It's not, you're not, not, not just talking about it. And if you look in Europe, there's nothing going on. And on that note, we have to conclude that the future is digital, whichever way we turn it. And it's, it's fascinating to have had the time to explore this topic with the three of you. But unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. So Ambassador Pimchenok Pitfield, Simon Evenet, Chris Southworth, Thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights with me. Now, if you are interested in the other expert conversations that are a part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash GTS. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, 
and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.